Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, After having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And I'm excited you are listening in for season four, where each month I'm co-hosting this podcast with a different young woman. My special co-host each month shares her faith story and questions related to spiritual matters. And then together, we're inviting special guests on to share their stories and also address some of my co-hosts' honest questions. Once again, I want to say thank you to those of you who are investing in this podcast through Patreon. Your financial support is greatly appreciated and super helpful as we're making some big decisions about next year's content and what we can do with the resources that we have. So if you care about this podcast and would like conversations like this to keep on going, then I'm inviting you to find out more about how you can help with this podcast by becoming a Patreon supporter. More information can be found on my website at findingsomethingreal.com. Today, we're back with our special co-host, Tasha. Tasha shared last week about a very traumatic, hard personal history, but she also shared about the hope that she's found in trusting Jesus Christ, and she wants her story to inspire others. And Tasha, I think it is. To that end, Tasha, I know when we recorded our first episode together, there were a lot of technical difficulties um, and things that we had to work around, so parts had to be cut out that were a little inaudible. Um, And you told me that you were re-listening to our first episode and wanted to make sure listeners knew something about your story. You said, I want listeners to know that when I wasn't sure whether my son was going to be alive or not, I told the Lord I was going to worship him anyway. And I love that that was so important to you, that you wanted to make sure that it was shared in the podcast. So Tasha, thank you for coming back. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited you're here because Tasha, you've brought up some really great questions, um, including one that I hope to really get into today, which is how can we actually trust the Bible? Um, And I know you have a bunch of follow-up questions to that, and I'm excited about our guest today who's here to tackle that topic and answer some of your questions. I know you're going to have a lot of great ones uh, to throw at him. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, before I introduce today's guest very quickly, I just wanted to give a shout out to my friend Amber Cullum with the Grace Enough podcast. Today's guest wouldn't be here without her support of this podcast. And Amber is doing kingdom work over there. 
interviewing incredible guests, and always bringing the heart of the conversation back to the truth of Jesus Christ. So if you get a chance, friend, and you're looking for a podcast, please check hers out. It's called Grace Enough. Today's guest is an award-winning and best-selling author. And truth be told, I've had several past guests mention this guy when they're discussing what books have really helped them in sharing their faith. In fact, I had one guest, I can't remember if it was, if it was Chan Arnett or Alan Crostick, both um, incredible apologists, who suggested this guest's book, Tactics, was a must-read for every Christian believer, which was certainly high praise. In fact, I listened to them, and I actually have a copy that I purchased over a year ago. Uh, this guest, he's also founded a ministry called Stand to Reason in 1993, and I'm excited to chat with him more about that. He has spoken on more than 70 college and university campuses, both in the U.S. and abroad, and has hosted his own call-in radio show for 27 years, advocating for Christianity worth thinking about. He has debated prominent atheists and even Deepak Chopra, I don't even know how to pronounce that guy's name, on national television. He has been featured on Focus on the Family Radio and has been interviewed for CBN and the BBC. He's been quoted in Christianity Today, the U.S. News and World Report, and the L.A. Times. He received his Master's in Philosophy of Religion and Ethics at Talbot School of Theology, graduating with high honors, and his Master's is in Christian Apologetics with honors from Simon Greenleaf University. He is also an adjunct professor in Christian Apologetics at Biola University. Wow. So Tasha and I are excited to welcome our special guest today, Greg Kokel. Well, uh, I am uh, worn out just listening to that. You know, I just want to remind the listeners that the message is more important than the messenger, all right? But it was sweet of you to read that. And I have to tell you, I'm thrilled about this opportunity to be with you both because I have never been on a show like this where you kind of rotate in a co-host that can help you. Uh, I think that's fabulous. It's a great idea. And I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. And it's wonderful because really every month the content is curated by my co-host and her questions. Mm -hmm. So, um, Greg, you obviously have an impressive resume, but it didn't... God's done a work. Tell us a little bit about your faith journey. Well, I have uh, I have been a Christian for forty eight years, one week and two days, or maybe it's three days now. I just <laughs> had my spiritual birthday, and uh, actually, the church that I was a member of for twenty five years, and also a staff pastor for about eight years, and that sent me out with Stand to Reason, just had its fiftieth anniversary last week. So I came on board with that church when I was three years old, and now I'm, you know, and 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 I have this whole history with them and going back for the anniversary, seeing all my friends much grayer now and uh, uh, much older now, obviously, it was really sweet. And it reminded me of the things that God did early on. Uh, I was, uh, I, I, I came out of a, a kind of a nominal Christian background that didn't survive my teenage years. And uh, I embraced a, a wild, crazy world of the mid 60s when I started going to college then and uh, adopting all my own philosophies and everything. And it wasn't until uh, the early 70s that my younger brother started telling me about a Jesus that I had never heard of. Now, mm -hmm. what I mean by that is I was getting a picture of Jesus that was different than what I had gotten when I was raised. Because as I was raised, I heard a lot about the law, all the do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and all the things that I was going to do wrong or I shouldn't be doing so I don't go to hell. And uh, then I discovered... <laughs> 
as he's telling me this, this is the new message, that uh, it's not that those lists of do's and don'ts don't mean anything because God cares about moral behavior, but you're never going to be able to keep that list adequately enough to withstand, to avoid God's judgment because nobody can do that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, wow, that's bad news. I thought the gospel was good news. And here comes the good news. Mm -hmm. There's mercy. There's mercy for every single one. And the mercy is full and complete. In other words, it covers all of those things. So I can come now as a follower of Jesus before the Lord, as the writer of Hebrews says, with full assurance of faith, having my heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and my body washed with pure water for he who promised is faithful. So this is the message of grace. And it's the message of God's mercy that transformed my life and set me on a new, a entirely new path. And very soon after I became a Christian, uh, within actually a, a few months, I moved into a kind of a crazy Jesus freak uh, community in Westwood Village right off the uh, campus of UCLA. And it was magnificent. It was just magnificent because for two and a half years I lived there and I got great training. I got great discipleship. Uh, a lot of the people that were involved in the leadership there were um, had been with Campus Crusade for Christ. They, they, they knew street evangelism. They had been trained in theology at Dallas Seminary. So it was an unbelievable thing for a brand new believer to be taken under their wings and to be taught. And that really launched my Christian life. And I, it, it, and I and built the foundation not only theologically, but as a, these were thoughtful people and they were thoughtful Christians. And there was no like, um, don't ask questions, just believe. Read your Bible more, pray more, and what, that'll solve all your problems. Well, it doesn't because there are problems that can't be solved by just reading your Bible more and praying more because there are questions about the Bible and prayer that sometimes get in the way, mm. all right? And so, but rather um, they were very, um, uh, as I said, thoughtful about engaging the, the issues of their convictions and um, and making a case for them. And early on, people like uh, Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis and, and Josh McDowell at the time became, you know, really helpful for kind of filling in those areas that I was just describing. Um, and I ended up going years later, I, I went to Southeast, I, let me back up. I, I'm getting my calendar mixed up here. First, I went to Eastern Europe and I worked with, uh, in 1976, working with Christians living behind the Iron Curtain when there was mm. an Iron Curtain. I was in five communist country, countries and uh, uh, working in a clandestine way for five and a half weeks there. I was in Europe for three and a half months, but five and a half weeks behind the in the East and uh, seeing what totalitarianism does to people, including Christians. And, uh, and then um, a few years later, I went to Thailand. I lived there for seven months and I worked in a Cambodian refugee camp, helping the Cambodians who'd survived the Cambodian Holocaust from 1976 to 79. Mm -hmm. And I uh, was just serving their needs there with food for the hungry. Uh, when I came back, I started as a staff pastor at that church that had been uh, my my church from the beginning and i was there for eight years and um and that was the church that sent me out to establish this organization in 19 uh 1993 called stand to reason and the the motivation behind it uh janelle and tasha was um uh, uh, my my conviction about the biblical teaching about uh how god distributes ministry is not that he distributes by calling 
Like you got to wait to hear a nudge, nudge, hint, hint kind of thing. But he distributes by gifting. The calling thing is almost nowhere in the Bible. The gifting thing is everywhere. I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 2 or 4, whatever, Ephesians 4. I mean, there's a lot of that in there. So I thought, okay, here's how we do it. I got to figure out what I do do well, what God has gifted me to do, and focus and pursue that and narrow my focus. That's the whole idea of gifting. And that's what I did. It was on that. I was challenged to start something that was consistent with my peculiar gifts and focus out on that. And that's when Stand Reason started in 19, like I said, 1993, over 28 years ago. And our goal was to um, to create an ambas- to create ambassadors for Christ, to address the culture with the worldview of Christianity, but not in a shrill way and not in a shallow way. All right, but not in a silent way either. So we wanted to take the shrillness out. Let's have conversations. Uh, let's let's have some substance here and let's talk because Christianity can compete in the marketplace of ideas if it's properly understood big if um, and if it's if it's uh, uh, defended clearly and, and that's also a big if so a lot of times Christians throw out slogans as bromides to real problems that need to be addressed okay so anyway this is what we did started 20. 20, what did I say, 28 years ago, and and God has been pleased to prosper it all these years, and I've just been along for the ride, have a tiger by the tail, and the numbers you gave earlier, those are old numbers. I mean, I have more than 80 college and university campuses and 30-plus uh, years on the radio now, and uh, but all of that has just been trying to make a difference for the cause of Christ in a way that's consistent with my capabilities mm-hmm. and just like you're doing right there. You've got this, You've got now you've got a bully pulpit, Janelle, and you're using it well. Yeah. Well, Greg, uh, love your story. Um, Jesus Christ obviously changed and messed up your life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So what compels you to do this every day? Well, um, I guess the simplest way of putting it is when, um, when when I shuffle off this mortal coil, all right, um, I want to hear the words, well done good and faithful servant. That's it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. I didn't become a Christian because God's going to solve all my problems. He created a whole bunch more problems than he solved for me. All right. As you hinted at a moment ago, I didn't uh, become a Christian because God would get me married because I was a single guy. I didn't get married till I was 48. All right. I had my 48th birthday on my honeymoon. (laughs) So that didn't work out. And there is a whole bunch of stuff about my life that has not worked out the way I wanted it to to work out. Not my plans, but this isn't about my plans. It isn't about my, my, God's, you know, wonderful working in my life. It's about my working in God's wonderful life. Mm -hmm. Okay, to put it that way. And so um, that what keeps me going is my commitment to make a difference. And, you know, this is, I'm making a little point here about, I'm 71 years old, so people can't see my face there i'm 71 <laughs> all right and uh so i'm you I'm don't look 71 bit, right <laughs> well thank you but uh uh so i'm at a place that a lot of people are at in life even when they're getting their 50s and 60s and they look back and there's a lot less grain in the sand in the top side half of the hourglass than in the bottom and this time's running out okay and if your perspective is this four score and ten these 70 plus 80 plus whatever years that we have if that's it the limits of our existence when you get to my life you look back and you say man this has not gone the way i really wanted it to go sometimes better sometimes worse but there's a whole lot of unfulfilled desires 
a lot of plans that you have that didn't work out. You know, I'm never going to learn four languages, for example. I mean, that was an early goal. You know, you get your, 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 what do you call it? Your bucket, your um, bucket list. Yeah, your, yeah, that kind of thing. What is that? Whatever they called, you know, your your bucket thing, whatever your bucket list. It, you know, it's you're never going to get to it. All right, and this can be really depressing for people, and this is why they start doing something stuff foolish. You know, when they get to our age, all kinds of crazy stuff that creates more turmoil because they're trying to capture what they didn't have, and they're running out of time. I am not running out of time. Mm. I am not running out of time because it isn't four score and ten; it's eternity. And so what I'm doing is laying up, as as I'm capable of doing, treasures in heaven where neither moth nor moth rust destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. That's there. That's not going away. I'm making investments. It's like my long-term 401k. I'm pumping it aside. Well, you could, you know, what about this, that, the other thing? You can get away from all these moral restrictions and have fun. Well, I have fun, but it ultimately, in the long run, doing what's wrong doesn't result in fun. It results in all kinds of all kinds of disaster in people's lives. So I I, I am now I'm I'm trying to make a difference as I have always tried to do mm -hmm. for the kingdom. And my efforts are directed a little differently now than they used to be. But nevertheless, I, I don't feel like um, I'm running out of time. Uh, my I, I'm I'm spending my life in things that are important, and uh, I know that um, the momentary light affliction is producing for me an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Of course, that's Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and it's also a line that C.S. Lewis captured for a wonderful essay, maybe his most famous essay, Weight of Glory. Mm -hmm. And so that that's kind of what keeps me going, you know. Uh, it, yeah. it, and it has, I'll just, last thing here, Janelle and Tasha, it has not been easy. 48 years. It has not been easy. It is not easy to be faithful to God in a world that is going the entirely different direction. Though it's been a lot easier for American Christians than Christians in other countries now or Christians ever for most of the history of Christianity. Still, even it hasn't, on a personal basis, it's not been easy. So it doesn't matter though that God, you know, in this world, you have tribulation. Jesus warned us. He's, he let us know, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so that's, that's what I hang on to. I don't expect it to be easy. I don't expect God to answer all my prayers. I don't th expect everything to be rosy. This isn't the time for that, all things to fall into place just so. That's later. Right now, not so. We yeah. just follow the Lord wherever he takes us and thank him for what he's given us. I have a little sticker here uh, that I have on my on my computer screen. It says Coram Deo, C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. -E it's a Latin for uh, before the Lord mm -hmm. in his presence, essentially. And it's a reminder that every day is a gift that I live before the Lord. Wow. And I want to make it count. Love that. I have a follow-up question to all of that that I wasn't planning on asking, but right. um, no script. You know, I'm, I'll follow you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking of the person listening to this, and they're you know maybe not a Christian, maybe they are, but kind of wondering. And they're listening to you, and there's something compelling about what you're saying, but you're also saying how hard it's been to follow mm -hmm. Christ. So going back 48 years, 
would you still choose to follow Christ and why? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the reason is, well, let me back, uh, give you a small anecdote here. I was having an interview yesterday uh, with the Christ Revealed crowd. You know, I did some video with them a number of years ago. A lot of people have seen it. And, uh, and, and there was a question along this, what would you say to the non-believer is what he was asking. And I said, you know, if, if you are, it just depends on what your desire is. If your point of view is that life is about you, if your slogan is you do you, and this is what you're at, then I have nothing to say to you, to be honest. Um, if you're asking me, how can you commend Christianity to me so I can have all my desires here that I'm feeling right now satisfied, and this is the way a lot of people approach it, and the way Christianity is often peddled to the rest of the world. If that's your perspective, well, I have nothing to say to you because I'm not going to make that offer that to you. Jesus doesn't offer that to you. He's not getting onto your sled. You're climbing onto his, okay? He's the one in charge. The tail isn't going to wag the dog here, all right? So if you want reality, if you want reality, okay, that's a different matter, okay? There's a pecking order here because the our story starts in the beginning, God. <laughs> that's because he's the main character, not you. We don't show up until a little bit later, you know, down in the first chapter and then fuller more full in the second because we're important but we're it's not about us mm -hmm. and so at that point informed my own decision for christ i i wasn't becoming a christian so that i could get all the goodies and by the way during the jesus movement that was sometimes the appeal he'll give you peace and joy straighten your life out get your kids off drugs repair your marriage all these other things well sometimes <laughs> but not always uh, the reason I became a Christian was v a very simple, straightforward reason, because it was true. Mm. And I mean, capital T, true. Not true for me. I mean, really true. True like gravity is true, okay? Yeah. You know, if you don't believe in gravity, you're not going to float away. Yeah. <laughs> because it's real. And if you don't believe in God, he's not going to go away. And if you don't believe in Jesus, that doesn't mean that he is not going to be your judge at the end of of, of the history as we know it, or your rescuer at the end of history as we know it, one or the other. It, that's a reality. And so it, it in a certain sense, Janelle, Tasha, it didn't matter to me whether things got better or worse or followed my plan. It didn't change the nature of reality, right? Okay, if you're on an ocean and you're in a squall, you still have, you have to have good seamanship right? In order to get out of the squall, you still have to address it. You say, I don't like this squall. Well, what are you going to do? Give up? You can't. You've got to address the real set of circumstances. And I'm convinced that the Christian understanding of reality, Jesus' view of the world, is the accurate view of the world. Mm -hmm. It's not just my faith, because my faith doesn't make it true. My personal commitment doesn't make it true. It either is or it isn't, regardless of what my, my faith dictates for me. My faith is just my act of trust in that thing, in that understanding the nature of the world. And, uh, and, and I've, I've learned that Jesus can ride out the storm. In fact, I was just reading this verse out of Second Timothy uh, just the other day. Um, that uh, I'm trying to think how it starts now. Uh, uh, I know, 
Paul says, this is his last letter. He's on his way out. He's, he's finished the course, right? He's saying goodbye to Timothy. He's passing the baton. He says, I know in whom I have believed and that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Okay, mm -hmm. that day is when everything gets rosy. And Paul, he didn't have it rosy, but he knew in whom he had believed and that he was able to keep that was entrusted to him. Yeah, oh, so good. Well, I'm going to let Latasha take this over here in a second, but I kind of wanted mm -hmm. to segue here. Um, you know, so many people today, I think, I, I don't remember if it was the Museum of the Bible that I was, is that the one in Washington, D.C.? I've been there. Um, but anyway, I, I was there a couple years ago. And An they had, exhibit, did you say? No, it was called the Museum of the Bible in oh, Washington, D.C. Well, there was one. The Green Collection uh, was there. It was traveling around the world, but then it settled in D.C. somewhere. So No, I, this is it. a whole... Um, it, it was really... I think the, the guy who did Hobby Lobby might be part of it. I don't know. Yeah, there's that's a, it. That's the Green Collection. Okay. Well, there's the a Greens whole museum. The, pardon me? There's a whole museum now. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was massive. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Anyway, it was amazing. It's the largest private collection of biblical documents and artifacts in the yeah. world. Yeah, they had a bunch of Dead Sea Scrolls, and I went there with a couple of people who weren't sure about God, so it was really interesting. But anyway, they had a bunch of statistics about how people view the Bible. Because mm -hmm. um, I've heard, I've had people on this podcast before that have said, the Bible's like a map, you know? And if you don't mm -hmm. trust the map, you're going to have some issues. And mm -hmm. a lot of Christians today at least from my perspective and the things that I've read, um, have some insecurities about the map, Greg, okay. um, which I think is a real issue, right? Mm -hmm. I, I agree. <laughs> and so um, Tasha here, she was honest about having some questions. And Tasha, I'd love for you to share just some of your, your train of thought in coming up with these questions, as you did with me just a week ago. Uh, my questions. Um well, one of them was like, why was the Apocrypha taken out by the Protestant church? Um, what books were taken out by the Catholic church? Like, I don't trust the Catholic church at all. So anything they took out, I think, is because they didn't want us to know it. Well, the Apocrypha is always available through the whole life of the church to read. The question is the status of the, the books that were called the Apocryphal books, all right? And this is a certain group of, of books that were esteemed in some measure by the Jews, but as it turns out, was never considered by the Jews to be Holy Scripture on the same level of the, as the Hebrew Scriptures. So this is a debate in, in, in uh, Christendom, but I'll... I'll uh, and it's often characterized in curious ways. The, the way you just offered it, why was it taken out, the Apocrypha? That, that isn't actually the way it happened. So what you have is you have the Hebrew Scriptures, the, uh, the Old Testament Scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, by, by our characterization. That wasn't the order they put it in. But, okay, so that was what the Jews understood to be God's Word, and that is what Jesus and the Apostles understood to be God's Word, okay? And, and, and they accepted that. Now there's a whole new a whole new body of work in the New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, the Book of Acts, etc., uh, that that from the Christian perspective is considered inspired on par with the old. But these books here were kind of in the middle, okay? And the Jews never accepted them as 
God-inspired on the level of the Old Testament. This is very interesting because these are their books. And there is a sense when it comes to canon, that canon, that is the, what are the books that are accepted as the inspired word of God and authoritative? The, the, the rule, that's what the word canon means. There is a sense in which certain, it isn't like one group of people gets together and gets to say it. All right, that isn't how it worked. Like we, we're saying we're, we're the official group and we're declaring it so. What actually took place is the people of God recognized those things that were God's books. So the, Hebrew, the Jews understood, and, and that may be a hocus pocus kind of thing, but I just see the, the hand of the Holy Spirit there. The community recognized these are the books that re reflect our understanding of God speaking to us, the Jews, and they did not include the Apocrypha. The New Testament church also did not include the Apocrypha, not, not like with one voice. There were differences of opinion about what books were considered part of the authoritative canon, even in the New Testament. But there weren't that many differences of opinion. When you look at the history of the New Testament, you do see that largely if there's clear apostolic authorship, Pauline, for example, or John or Peter, that's in, okay? But then there was some there were questions about, like Hebrews or maybe Revelation or Second Peter or something like that. But, um, but for the most part, there was a common voice, all right? This was not true early on about the Apocrypha. So there was no, there was no, even though th these writings were esteemed, just like the Shepherd of Hermas was esteemed as writing early on as a useful Christian writing, just like mere Christianity might be considered that, it's not inspired by God by their view. What ended up happening though, and, and this is part of the reason there were things in the Apocrypha, at least one, the Apocrypha is a large group of books and the Roman Catholic Apocrypha is a smaller subset of that. So it isn't like all the apocryphal books were accepted. But what ended up happening is there were, there were things in the Apocrypha that seemed to be inconsistent with the revealed truth of other scriptures, but were important parts of Roman Catholic theology. And so it isn't like the Apocrypha was taken out by the Protestants. It was, it was actually put in in the 15th century or so, or 16th century, um, at the Council of Trent, I believe, by the Roman Catholics. So they had always kind of viewed this as authoritative, but it became dogma that this is part of the Bible at that time. So it's actually more accurate to say it was added in by the Catholics. My sense is that it was made authoritative by the Catholics because there were controversial doctrines that now the Reformation was challenging based on the rest of the canon and they're saying well it is in the canon here it is and we canonize it so it's a little bit of an oversimplification but it does relate to the the broader issue of like what's in the bible and what isn't and the apocrypha has never had a thoroughgoing support by the body of christ in general and certainly not by the jews which it seems to me that ought to if the holy spirit's going to work in his community to authenticate in some way or another scripture, then um, then you're going to have much more of a unanimous acknowledgement of those scriptures, and that we do have that in the community regarding the Hebrew scriptures. We do that have that with the canonical works that we know of the you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and all the epistles. All right, we do not have that, and never did, with regards to the apocrypha, the so-called apocrypha.
even greats like Jerome reject, I think, I sometimes get the old guys mixed up, but I think it was Jerome. Even greats like Jerome said no on the Apocrypha. So you, what? That's important. When you have a a mixed a mixed assessment there, and the reasons are given, um, that's not a good sign. The ones that we trust as part of the canon are ones that it's clear when you follow the history that the church put its its approval on not because one group got together and said we know what's the right ones and on our authority no they recognize the authority of the scriptures and uh and acknowledge them because of the source in most cases from the apostles who are trained by jesus does that help yeah um i didn't realize that it was actually added i thought that it was taken out by the protestant church like 200 years ago no no, the, 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 the controversy about this happened right around the time of the Reformation, which is the 16th century, early 16th century. And the late 16th century or mid to late was the Council of Trent by the Roman Catholic Church, which was a counter-Reformation move. You got, you got Martin Luther doing his thing and all these, these, these uh, Protestants now, so the church is responding. And then they have the Council of Trent and they make all of these statements and they anathematize a whole bunch of things. Like they anathematize. Uh, salvation by faith alone was anathematized. In other words, if you believe in salvation by faith alone, according to the Roman church at Trent, you were accursed, okay? That's not good. <laughs> but this was a reaction to, to the Reformation. So they're really trying to push back. Now, from a Catholic perspective, I can see that. I can understand why they'd be motivated. The question is, which view of salvation and faith and all that is theologically sound and correct. And uh, I was raised in the Catholic Church. Mm. <laughs> all right, I didn't mention that until now. And what I learned was that salvation was through works. And that's what almost virtually every Catholic I have ever talked to understood. And uh, even though they say, well, it is by grace, in you know, the devil's in the details. It wasn't the Reformation message of grace alone, you know, yeah. and Jesus alone kind of thing, etc. the solos. Greg, have you read uh, the Apocrypha, the books that have been left out of the Bible? No, I haven't. Um, I, I have read a couple of them, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I'm, I'm not a student of that, and uh, I got too many other things <laughs> to read, you know. Do you know uh, if any of them actually contradict anything that we have well, in our Bible? There, I, I'll tell you what I recall, and that is uh, one of the things that Roman Catholics do is they pray for the dead, okay? And uh, this, on my take, is prohibited in the scriptures. That's calling on the dead. It's necromancy, essentially. And uh, now, they don't consider it that way, but I don't, you know, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a kind of thing, you know, it's probably a duck. It is calling on the dead, and there is no New Testament justification for such a thing. However, they're does seem to be in one of the apocryphal books some justification from that text. And so, you know, if that text is inspired, now you've got an inspired justification. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I think this is part of what's going on, all right? I'm not just simply saying it's all one-sided like that. It's all, this is why they're doing it. But to me, it's, it was quite suspicious the way this came down historically. Mm. And I do think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Necromancy is prohibited. 
do you mean praying to the saints to do stuff for them like instead of praying to jesus well yeah see this is an example of that i mean if you're praying to a saint to do something then you are calling on the dead to accomplish something on your behalf now saul did this with the witch of endor and he called he conjured up she conjured up and actually to her surprise from the account she conjured up um <clears throat> samuel and samuel was bugged and samuel right. pardon me right i just read that story the other day so yeah no yeah exactly. it's just a small thing it's not a story it's an account and that happened and so when we're reading that we see well here's what god thinks of this kind of thing but i don't see what the difference is now i know that it in praying to saints i i know that well it's different because and then all these qualifiers given but it doesn't seem to me that the qualifiers are adequate to overwhelm the plain sense of the text that says no and plus there is a consequence of this um tasha and that is that people begin looking to others in a way that they should be looking to jesus and this is paramount with mary you know when i was in italy mary was above everybody above jesus in every single case you look at the statuary everywhere you know there's mary above 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 in fact if you go to rome um and you look at the statuary of mary you'll see something unusual about the brass statues the lips are deformed on the brass statues so are the nipples of her breasts why because of years and years and years of people rubbing them to get a blessing oh, wow. this is in rome this is the seat uh of the papal see right and so wow you know why aren't they told don't do that you know but this is just this 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 is the consequence i think of a distorted theology all right i'm not saying that rome officially approves of all that but they could easily say don't do that and i don't see that and they do have this view of mary that does seem to encourage that kind of thing and that puts some other human being in the place of jesus in a way that's not appropriate it's not the same as if i were to ask you tasha to pray for me we are told to pray for each other on this side of the grave we are told not to appeal to people on the other side of the grave. It's very straightforward. Hmm. Okay. What does it say in Scripture not to appeal to people on the other side of the grave? It's, uh, it's, in, it's in Deuteronomy. I don't have the text right in front of me. <clears throat> but this is why the witch of Endor was so frightened when Saul came to her, and he was disguised. She didn't know he was Saul, you know, the right. king. Uh, she knew that if she was caught, that she would be guilty according to the law of a capital crime you know, calling on the dead. Okay. And so, uh, and, and part of the reason you see the, the, the necromancers and the, the astrologers and that condemned is because God has a role that he is supposed to play in our lives that these become a substitute for. And so that's the language of the Old Testament when it talks about these things. The secret things belong to the Lord, mm -hmm. you know? And it's interesting when you see the longest Psalm in the Bible is Psalm 119. And every single verse has some reference to the law. In other words, this is the thing that we are, God's objective written word that is the foundation for our spiritual lives, not something we hear from some spiritist of any sort, necromancers, uh, um, astrologer, etc., etc. So these things are condemned because, in part, because of the place that they play in stead of god 
Well, that's idolatry. That's the essence of idolatry. Hmm. So yeah, uh, there's a there's a rationale here that makes sense regarding these things. Yeah. You remember what chapter and verse it says it? I'm trying to look and I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I, to be honest, my, my Bible's across the room here, but um, it's uh, it's it's in Deuteronomy. I'm I'm, I'm almost positive, yeah. and and plus there's condemnation of these kinds of people uh in in other passages all right general condemnation and then the the incident with the witch of endor and saul is in first samuel towards the end of first samuel well, you just read it so you know where it's at it, and it's incidentally if you go to that passage you probably and you have footnotes or references like in the side column they might cross-reference to deuteronomy you might check it out that way okay did you have any follow-up question to that, Tasha? Anything else you wanted to ask Greg specifically? Um, oh, yes, I have a lot of questions. Um. <laughs> Can I just follow up one thing here, Tasha? This is an important question. I'm glad that you asked and I was able to offer my thoughts on it. But um, even if I were to say, okay, put the Apocrypha in, it's not going to make a big difference in the grand picture. All right, these are, we're really talking about minor, finer adjustments. All right. The big picture stands for Roman Catholics and for Protestants, regardless of the the role of the Apocrypha, because we all agree on all the other books. And that's where the substance of the Christian view of reality comes from and uh, the rescue and all of those things. Mm -hmm. well, the older the older uh, Bibles, like I seen this post where there was like this bible from geneva that had like a whole bunch more books in it and it was like this thick <laughs> yeah um the geneva bible probably and i don't i don't i don't know about those extra books the only books that i'm aware of where there's contention regarding the bible is just the apocrypha that's all now sometimes the bible may include other books but let me back up for a moment the bible isn't a book it is a library all right it's not a book it's a library it's a library where all of these other books are bound together all right and they didn't get bound together into one book until about the fourth or fifth century eight after jesus in fact you can see two of the major ones there in england if you go to london and then they have uh, codex sinaiticus and codex alexandrinus these are they're sitting next to each other. These are the oldest codexes, which is bound together Bibles. So sometimes, you know, you have these individual books that are later than been bound together into one. Subsequent editions may bind together some other things in there that are considered helpful. I don't know about the Geneva Bible, I'm just saying. So you might have a study Bible. Nowadays, well, you got the Word of God, and then you got human words in there that are meant to be helpful. Well, nobody presumes that those human words are God's words. Those are just instructive things. So it's certainly possible that even in the, uh, a couple hundred years ago when Bibles were assembled, that other material might be assembled with it that is was not even by them considered canonical. I mean, I can't speak directly because I don't know about the Geneva Bible, but that was, I mean, that was a Protestant Bible. I'd be, I don't think the Pro Geneva Bible had, uh, had uh, the Apocrypha in it, you know what I'm saying? But I, I can't speak authoritatively on that. Okay. Hmm. 
And what do you know about uh, Moses? Because I was doing a little bit of research and I came across something. I don't know how true it is, but it was basically saying that uh, Moses didn't write the first books of the Bible. And one of the things they stood on was saying that Moses uh, didn't, he like predicted his own death and was like talking about right. third person. Sure. Well, it, there's, I mean, um, I, I, I am chuckling a little bit at this because I know the verses you're talking about that the, they're at the end of uh, Deuteronomy, okay? Um, and it's like, so here you have this whole account um, that the the Jews understood as being authored by Moses. And then you have a line that talks about his burial. And you think, well, he couldn't have written that. He's dead. Right. And the answer is, you're right. He didn't write that. But because he didn't write the last line that is appended to the larger account of his life, doesn't mean he didn't write the larger account of his life. That doesn't make any sense at all. And this is kind of what, what th this is a trend. Find one little thing that seems to go against the narrative and that disqualifies the whole narrative. Well, I've got a different explanation. Not that someone else wrote all the books, but that somebody else wrote the last few lines <laughs> to create a transition into the next book, which is Joshua. I mean, to me, that makes more sense. But there yeah. is nothing about the text itself that, I, that, that can, compels me to think that Moses wasn't the author. And sometimes what people do is they look at little, um, this was very popular at the end of the 19th century and through the early parts of the 20th century, but is not so much followed anymore, I think, uh, at least by many. And that is, well, let's look at these differences in the way certain vocabulary is used and, and in different parts of Genesis and, and in Deuteronomy, et cetera, et cetera. And so let's then posit that because this language is used, Lord, as opposed to Lord God or something like that, Adonai instead of Yahweh, that must be a different author. This is what they've done. This is the, um, it's, it's a, it was a, it was a favorite um, approach of, of scholarship a hundred years ago, and there are still remnants of that around, but it's the higher critical method is what they call it. And uh, and then they would slice and dice all these books up into these JEPD, letters that they assigned to different parts of the books that were written by different people based on this word or stylistic analysis. Um, but, you know, that has been seriously challenged as being academically sound and people have actually taken the same criterion that were applied by these authors that were used by these authors and applied by on the, on the old testament to apply to the author's own book to argue that the author didn't even write the book that his name is attached to look at these variations so this is not, has been demonstrated to be a unreliable way of assessing the uh the authorship of these ancient documents even though for some people they're very powerful. There is a payoff. And so you can see how some people would be inclined to go with this because this is a way of, in a certain sense, naturalizing the text. This isn't a supernaturally inspired text. These are just people throwing together ideas about God, not yada yada. But there's also great signs of unity between these texts as well. So, I mean, there, there are actual textual arguments on both sides, and it turns out the people who do this, that argument to me is not in the slightest bit convincing. And many people have, have invaded against that approach, the higher critical method, and uh, have found it wanting. But the specific question you've asked, Latasha, is, 
it, it just, I may have to chuckle because it strikes me as, as straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. There's a much easier, there's a much easier explanation here. Some guy appended a transition and Moses died and was buried by God in Mount Nebo and, and then came Joshua, you know, okay, duh. Why, why would we be surprised about that? What do you think, Natasha? I, I think he's probably right. <laughs> yeah. Have any other follow-up things you want to ask him? I have a couple final things. There was a few things, but I'm like so excited right now that my brain won't let me focus on it. <laughs> well, maybe it'll come back to you here as we talk about it. Yeah. So, Greg, I wanted to touch on something. Um, you know, people in our culture right now, as Tasha, you know, just mentioned, she watched a video that sh she didn't right. know the basis of the mm -hmm. truth of it, but it sowed a seed of doubt in her mind. Sure. Um, and I hear that all the time on this podcast. You know, I mm -hmm. watched a YouTube video or I watched a TikTok and um, something I've heard often is the Bible was changed in 1946. And now I know that, you know, this, uh, this sin it's is no longer It's about homosexuality, yep. this particular charge. Yep. You know, no we've longer... dealt with that particular charge. Would you mind just touching on that, um, you know, wanting to change what the Word of God says now, because maybe there was something, it, I feel like it's just people looking for something that validates what they want to do. I mean... yes. Well, I do think that's the motivation, but we want to be careful that we don't disqualify right. a challenge because of what we see to be a, a bad motivation. C.S. Lewis dealt with this in an essay called Bulverism, and what he said there is, first you have to show that a person is wrong before it's meaningful to ask why he is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when I talked about the Apocrypha, I gave the reasons why I think the Apocrypha is not to be included. And then it's fair to ask, well, if it, those are good reasons, then why would the Roman church include it? And then you could look at motives, okay? And in the same point uh, here, like say, for example, the claim that the word homosexual was an invented word, all right? And, uh, and, and it found its way into Bible translations in the, in the 40s or something like that. Uh, in the book of, uh, in First Corinthians, the, the word arsenicoites, you know, oh, they, they, there was no word homosexual. Okay, well, okay, now, there's a, I understand that. Okay, and there's a whole movie being made about this. Mm -hmm. But I want you to think about something. Who do we associate with the discovery of gravity? Either of you. <laughs> That's the easy one, I thought. I don't know. The Isaac Newton, all right. Okay. The apple falls in his head or whatever, okay. So Isaac Newton discovers gravity. Notice he discovered it. He didn't invent it. When he discovers gravity, who, I don't even know who gave the word to it, but where that, but it, it, it's a modern word, gravity. So let's just say he invented the word gravity. That doesn't mean he invented gravity. Hmm. He just found a word to describe it. Maybe the word homosexual was invented in the 40s, okay? Shakespeare invented all kinds of words mm. to capture real things, to explain real things. The word homosexual might be a new word in English, but arsenicoites is not a new word, it's there in the Greek. And, it's, and it means men who bed with men. Mm. That's what it means. And it is taken, those words are taken actually from the Greek translation of Leviticus, where homosexuality is described and condemned. 
And so the Greek words are pulled out of Leviticus and Paul uses them to describe this behavior that was existent all around that, by the way, he describes in Romans 1, but he doesn't apply the name to it. Men with men mur who burning their desire towards one another, abandoning the woman that God gave to them and the function of the woman in burning. Well, you can see by the description, you know what he's talking about, whether he uses the word homosexual or not. This is a complete shell game. Even if the word were invented, that doesn't mean the concept was invented. The concept, the condemnation, biblical condemnation of the concept goes all the way back to the, 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 the book of Leviticus, for goodness sake. Now, whether that applies today is another de debate. All this is, is, an, is a claim that the notion of homosexuality was added to the Bible and invented in the 40s. And now everybody's down on homosexuals, all the Christians, and they shouldn't be. And what I'm saying is that argument is utterly irrelevant to the issue. Maybe the word was invented like gravity, but that doesn't mean the concept wasn't condemned thousands of years ago by God's people. And this is absolutely clear. In fact, the, the New Testament says nothing in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anything good about homosexuality. And uh, when we go back to the created order, as Jesus does in Matthew 19, he looks at Genesis 2, one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That's God's plan. That includes marriage and gender and sex all in one concept. One man, one woman. That's binary sexuality. That's Jesus becoming one flesh. That's sex. And that's where sex is supposed to be for one lifetime. Mm. Okay, so he covers all those bases in Matthew 19 by going back to the original and, 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 and that one line speaks to all of that effectively. So um, anyway, the, the broader point you brought up, Janelle, was that there are people that are taking shots here and there and here and there and there, and this creates well, doubt. And I was just going to say, too, it's not just non-believers. It's a lot of Christians. I'm seeing well, this from my Christian brothers and sisters who are saying, well, now I'm going to question everything because I'm poking sure. holes in all these different things. Right. Okay. So there are actually two categories here. There is Christendom, and then there are Christians who are confused, which I get that. And they get confused by these charges. Now, part of what Stand to Reason does, that's the organization I represent. This is what we do. We do what I just did a moment ago mm -hmm. with this charge that homosexuality is a created word in the 1940s. And so the implication is all of our concern about the moral, biblical morality of homosexuality is misplaced. As if before the 1940s, nobody was concerned about that. We invented this problem. Well, this is not the fact. And so here's the deal. When you see the challenge, you have to look at the nature of the challenge. Okay, now some people aren't good at and assess it. Some people aren't good at doing that. We are. This is why we do what we do. And when we explain what's behind it, I think people can see, oh, that, I can see the problem. I can see the shell game. In fact, we have already addressed this problem even before the movies come out at Stand a Reason because we know it's going to shake a lot of people up. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, but what this requires then, even if you don't have stand a reason or somebody like that uh you can't just take what you hear on a TikTok, for goodness sake and i'm not saying that there's an unreliable source of authority i'm saying that this is just like what 10 seconds of information how are you going to assess that just because they say it's so doesn't mean it's actually so in terms of the facts of the matter 
all right all this stuff about the story of jesus being uh being re, re uh, cobbled together from ancient mythologies like osiris and and uh um all the guys i can't remember them all now all the ancient gods and everything it was a movie it's about a, that it's a fiction i know they made a m- m- number of, it's a total fiction i promise you there is not a qualified historian on the planet who believes that mm-hmm. none it is all something generated by the internet and goes round and round and round and round and round. Okay. Talking about the other gods that were supposedly born of a virgin that were like way before Jesus. Yeah. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, exactly. You have the whole list of things. I talk um, about, go ahead. I'm sorry. I had a cousin who left a video. Yeah explaining how these other gods that were supposedly had the same story as Jesus, but just way before Jesus. And they okay. turned into, apparently, it's based off of the stars, the astrology right. from, from star reading. And he held on to that and chose not to believe in God because of it. Yeah. Well, there's there are, are a lot of variations of that. It just depends what list you look at. But here's the devils and the details. So if Osiris rose from the dead, for example, I'm not sure if that's the right one. Egyptian Egyptian okay really where did you find that out the only way we know that is by looking at the primary source documents about Osiris the ancient documents that talk about this and when you find out we well, didn't rise from the dead his body was cut up in a bunch of pieces and uh, circulated around and then somebody grabbed most of the pieces one was left out his genitals and packed them all together and then he rose from the he he became the he became the the uh the god of the underworld well that's not a resurrection like jesus i mean you when you look at the details there's no matchup almost none i've got a i got a, a book right over here behind me by turgiv Mediger. it's the it's big thick it cost me about 70 dollars. i got it so i'd have the source and he did the largest assessment that, that anybody's ever done on all of this and he said no there's no it's not it's not it's not happening i wrote about this in the story of reality a book that i wrote about four years ago the story of reality and i address this as a challenge to historicity of christ there's also a um, a logical error here what you can't do is you can't uh, let me back up and put it this way um the first time i heard this argument was michael Shermer in a debate he's uh, i debated mike uh on on radio but he brought this up in an earlier debate uh, he's an american atheist and uh, he, he's so dismissive the gospels okay and i thought of this right away a problem i said what if i came up to michael Shermer, and i said you're michael Shermer, yeah really <laughs> yes not possible why not because i've met seven people in the last month that all said they were Michael Shermer all born in the same place all these different things characteristics of what you say is true of your life so therefore you can't be the true Michael Shermer now you're chuckling I can see Natasha because there's you know that's silly so if he said to me oh, well I can prove you're uh, uh, I'm Michael Shermer okay how he would give me his bona fides he'd give me his uh maybe his uh, driver's license or something like that so regardless of the false claims of the past of other people who claim to be Michael Shermer or have lives fairly identical to Michael Shermer, he can demonstrate he is the really one, real one in possession of his own actual biography based on the bona fides that he can offer me. All right. You can see the two are separate just because 
of the one doesn't disqualify the second. Well, th there's something like this in the Gospels. Um, and this goes back to C.S. Lewis's comment. First, you have to show that a person is mistaken before it's meaningful to ask why he is mistaken. And this means we have to first go to the bona fides for Jesus. What are they? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have to ask, is there good reason to take these documents as reliable history on the main of a man who lived 2,000 years ago and walked in, Jerusalem, in, 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 uh, in, in, in uh, ancient Israel? And the answer is yes. In fact, there's a new book out by J. Warner Wallace, who's mm. already got three wonderful books, and this is called A Person of Interest, and this looks kind of at the impact of Jesus through the ages, and the point there being there's no fictitious person that can have the kind of impact that Jesus had, all right? I'm just saying uh, uh, Jim is always recommending my book, so I recommend <laughs> his too, and this recent one is called A Person of Interest, okay? So it makes this case in spades. But the point here is if the historical documents are sound on their own, and they are. That's why I've got another book over here by a secular historian. It's one of a volume called Caesar and Christ. It's the it's the best selling is a Pulitzer Prize winning series, best selling book of history in history. And there it is, a whole volume of Caesar and the Christ. He's not what well, he's not saying. Well, gee, these here's a bunch of myths. No, this guy was a man of history, and that's why he's assessed that way. So when you see that the historical documentation is good, it doesn't matter if if there are similarities in past things, all right? If there are. But it turns out the similarities are wildly either exaggerated or concocted. They have no basis in reality, all right? Some people even say he was born on December 25th. We don't even believe Jesus was born on December 25th. Who believes that? Not me. <laughs> no, I mean, please. I mean, that's just a, So now if it turned out the history was bad, we have no good historical sources of Jesus, then it's meaningful to ask, well, where did these things come from? Oh, a bunch of these, you know, watch this, a bunch of these Jews cobbled together a bunch of pagan stories to pawn off on Torah observant Jews, right? I mean, that alone is like, that doesn't make sense, right? And incidentally, if you think of Jesus, um, I mean, sorry, think of Paul at Mars Hill having his discussion with the Epicurean philosophers and the Greek thinkers, all these pagan guys, right? And he brings up in his message, uh, the Acts 18, 17, 18, he brings up, he's talking about Jesus. This is a sermon to, regarding the unknown God. And then he says, and God has appointed a person uh, to judge mankind having provided proof by raising him from the dead. And the text says when the, he mentioned the resurrection, um, by the way, remember, this is the kind of thing in the life of Jesus that was supposed to be cobbled together from all these ancient mythologies that these pagan people believe in. When he mentions the resurrection, everybody started laughing. Oh, are you kidding? Resurrection? Please, go away, man. This is dumb. Oh, wait a minute. I thought all these pagans believed in the resurrection from all these other things that are now cobbled together in Jesus' life. It turns out it wasn't part of their belief system. It was unique. And so, I mean, these are a whole bunch of reasons not to take that whole narrative seriously. But like you said, Janelle, people are going to see that online and they get all shaken up and mm -hmm. they don't know how to deal with it. And again, this is why we're here with Stand to Reason to try to answer some of these things. But um, the key here is you can't just take these charges at face value. You can't. 
Some of them are, are, are distorted. Some of them are based on bad information. And some of them are just simply made up. And then they're passed around so much in the internet that people think they're true. Yeah. A couple final questions here real quick. I, I know mm-hmm. we're running out of time. Um, I've heard you speak with Elisa Childers, and this was, mm-hmm. uh, I think, a few months ago. And you said something then that really stood out to me. And I heard you talk about it again on the Grace Enough podcast with Amber. You were talking about the difference between gardening and uh, harvesting. Harvesting, yeah. And right. Something you said with Amber stood out to me. You were talking about when you see people come to Christ in the New Testament, um, there's not this altar call kind of thing that happens. It's a turning, it's fruit falling off the tree. Um, Mm -hmm. How does somebody come to Christ, and what encouragement would you give to the believer who wants to share their faith? You've just talked about Stand to Reason, where you equip people. If there's somebody listening who's like, "I I want more of what Greg has, Mm-hmm. What kind of encouragement could you give them? Well, th- this concept that I, I you're referring to is I make a distinction between gardening and harvesting, and most of our evangelism approaches are harvesting approaches. So we have little booklets with Pray the Prayer at the end. I'm not against that, but actually that's historically kind of new. Um, mid-18th century is when that became really popular in uh, in evangelical circles all right the altar call and all of that and that made its way into these booklets in the sense of making a decision for christ but that practice is nowhere found in the book of acts in the early church what you see there and a great example is just going to acts chapter 10 where peter is preaching the gospel to cornelius and his family and friends and you see peter speaking of the gospel and all of a sudden the people are manifesting evidence of evidences of regeneration they're speaking in tongues and prophesying and he's looking right he said man they got the holy spirit (laughs) we have now we can baptize them all right well wait a minute he didn't have his altar call yet he didn't say hey stop doing that stop saying that you know i'm not done yet you know no what happened is the gospel message was communicated clearly and people believed and therefore showed the manifestation so the closest thing to an altar call would have been a baptism but the baptism happened after salvation so there's a lot of people who don't know when they became Christians. When I have a spiritual birthday, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. And that's not a problem. What matters is what you are now. Even on our own staff, one of our speakers, Jonathan Noyce, he went from being a radical atheist to a radical Christian. And uh, so when did you get saved, John? I don't know. I once was lost, now I'm found, you know, kind of thing. I, I don't know. He doesn't have a spiritual birthday. He didn't know when it happened. Now, this is meant to demonstrate the dynamic of salvation where, and this is where I make the distinction between gardening and harvesting. I think a lot of people are focused on harvesting fruit that isn't yet ripe, mm. okay? And what I and those who are not comfortable with doing that are sitting on the bench, they're not engaged. And so what I write about in the book Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions, I write about the distinction between gardening and harvesting. And I give people a tool to garden. A little here, a little there, a little here, a little there. Remember earlier, um, Tasha, when the you you were in, engaged with some question and the, the, a challenge and that planted a seed of doubt in your heart or something, that phrase came up here. I understand the process, but that's what we want to do with the other ones. I call it putting a stone in their shoe. <laughs> you know, we want to annoy them in a good way. But uh, we don't have to go the distance with every person. 
We just do a little here, a little there. And the game plan that I talk about allows people to do that. And if we could do a little bit here, a little bit there, and we're all gardening, we have more gardeners out there in the field, there's going to be a bigger harvest. So I emphasize gardening, meeting a need, answering a challenge, offering some thoughts, maybe putting a stone in their shoe, a little bit here, a little bit there. And, the, and I'm convinced that the harvest takes care of itself because when the fruit is ready, it drops right into the basket. Just like Acts 10, Cornelius, and just like me on September 28, 1973. Praise the Lord. All right, final question. The Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love of those gifts that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ. Which stands out to you the most in your life right now? and why you know it's it's that's a good question and it's hard to separate them all okay yeah. i mean what jumped out was eternity because that's the big picture and i talked about it a little while ago but um you can't embrace christ the way he wants to be embraced i think without authenticity mm. here i am just as i am take me I'm yours kind of thing, you know? And uh, I know, I mean, Christians, like anybody else, are, are given to putting on airs. It's a human f frailty. Um, but, but we don't need to do that with God. We, we, there is no presumption before God, except a presumption of our guilt and our presumption of the mercy of God. And uh, I think um, the, the great hymnist, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said right at the end of his life, he said, I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Mm. And that's, that's as authentic as you can get. Yeah. Wow. Well, Greg Kokel, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I've sure loved listening to you. I could probably listen to you a lot longer. I'm going to have to go find out more about your Stand to Reason my ministry. My daughter's had that attitude. <laughs> well, if they're 13 and 16 years old, I mean, it will come yeah, eventually. Maybe. Yeah, right. God, God willing. Natasha, thank you, too. I'm so glad you yeah. were here. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Until next time, friend. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with him. Until next time.